0: A few things before we get started. First, this episode includes descriptions of lynchings and mob violence. I have avoided the most gruesome details, but the facts are the facts. You might find these descriptions upsetting. Second, I will be quoting from historic texts about race, which means sometimes I will use terms that are today considered offensive. I will definitely not be using the N-word, but some other language is difficult to avoid. All such terms will be within direct quotes or the formal names of organizations. Now to our story. The summer of 1919 was brutally hot throughout the Midwest, with temperatures nearing 100 for days on end. Residents of Chicago coped with the heat by going to the beach. The shores of Lake Michigan were packed all summer long with people of all races. The beaches were not segregated by law, but they were divided nonetheless. On the south side, the white beach started at 29th Street, A smaller beach for African Americans began further north at 25th Street and was separated from the White Beach by a rocky inlet. On Sunday, July 27th, the thermometer reached the high 90s, and both beaches were swarming with people. Among those enjoying themselves were five black teenagers, two brothers, Charles and Lawrence Williams, John Turner Harris, Paul Williams, not related, and Eugene Williams, also not related the boys had lashed together a rough raft and used it as a portable platform from which to dive and bob in the water that afternoon they set out on their raft and were busy being teenage boys laughing splashing immersed in their own world they did not realize that their raft had begun drifting south toward the white beach slowly and without noticing They edged across the invisible line that divided the swimming areas. The boys didn't notice, but the whites on the beach certainly did. This is the year that was, 1919. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, your host, and I'm so glad to be back. My holiday hiatus lasted longer than I planned because I caught the chest cold of the damned and had a cough that made me sound like a Victorian-era coal miner. But I am now healthy and rested up and excited about 1919 again. I have both looked forward to and dreaded this particular episode. The summer of 1919 was known as Red Summer for all of the blood spilled and racial violence. It is painful and horrifying to research, but so, so important. I want to back up a bit and set the stage before we return to Chicago and the five boys paddling around on their homemade raft. So we'll leave them there in their last few minutes of peace and happiness on that hot Sunday afternoon. In 1919, African-Americans made up just under 10% of the population of the nation. The majority of African-Americans, 85%, lived in the South, and the South operated under the Jim Crow system. This was a network of state and local laws that enforced racial segregation. All public schools and public transportation was segregated, along with restrooms, restaurants, hotels, pools, beaches, movie theaters, etc., etc., etc. Most African Americans were also unable, through a variety of restrictions, to vote. And black lives were ruled by a rigid social system that mandated African Americans defer to whites in every encounter terror was as fundamental to this system as in Bolshevik Russia or colonial India. The white ruling class regularly felt it had to quote, make an example of African Americans. Violence took many forms, but the ultimate threat was that of lynching. To be clear, lynching does not automatically mean hanging. Lynching is not a method of crime, but a type of crime. It is murder carried out by a mob. A lynching victim could be hanged, but could just as likely be shot, dragged, burned, beaten, or any and all of the above. Now, not all lynchings took place in the South, and not all were of African Americans. Native Americans were also lynched, as were Mexicans, Chinese, and Italians. Even some white IWW members were lynched. But the majority of lynchings were of African Americans and took place in the South. Southern whites justified lynchings because they claimed the legal system was incapable of addressing the supposedly heinous crimes committed by African Americans. The most common accusation was rape. Just as in British India, the terror that gripped Southern whites was of black men violating white women. However, African Americans could be, and often were, lynched over far less. Mobs went after men who had allegedly spoken disrespectfully to white bosses or looked at white women. One of the most baffling and horrifying aspects of lynching is that white communities were entirely open about them. A lynching was a public occasion and not a shameful one. Papers openly reported on lynchings as if they were a parade or a town fair. People took photos and printers produced postcards, sometimes of the delighted crowds, sometimes of Mutilated bodies and sometimes of both. Observers liked to keep these postcards as souvenirs. Other souvenirs were even more horrifying the bones or body parts of victims. Let me tell you a story about a lynching. In the spring of 1892, a fight broke out between whites and blacks at the People's Grocery Store in South Memphis, a store owned by an African American man named Thomas Moss. I won't go into the whole string of events, but when it was over, Moss and two of his employees were locked up in jail pending a trial. They didn't live to see the inside of a courtroom. Instead, on the morning of March 9th, a mob seized the three and hauled them out to be shot. Just before he was killed, Moss said to the mob, tell my people to go west. There is no justice here. In the long history of lynchings, alas, this was the sort of thing that happened all the time. But the murder of Thomas Moss was a terrific blow to his family's friend, Ida B. Wells. Wells decided it was time to tell white Americans the truth about lynching. Ida Bell Wells was born in 1862 to enslaved parents in Holly Springs, Mississippi. She enrolled in the historically black institution, Rust College, But before she could finish her education, both of her parents and one of her seven siblings died in a yellow fever epidemic. Wells returned home, took a job as an elementary school teacher, and cared for her younger siblings. The family moved to Memphis in 1883. Ida Wells didn't have a deferential bone in her body and stood up to the Southern caste system time and time again. For example, in 1884, she refused to give up her seat in a first-class railroad compartment and was dragged out of the car by three men. She bit one of them in the hand. She sued the railroad and won in lower court, although the ruling was later overturned. She began writing articles for African-American newspapers and eventually became co-owner and editor of the Free Speech and Headlight, a black newspaper in Memphis. When Moss was lynched, Wells wrote, quote, Somebody must show that the Afro-American race is more sinned against than sinning, and it seems to have fallen upon me to do so. This was the era of the muckrakers, when journalists conducted in-depth investigations of topics like working conditions in coal mines, corruption in politics, and false claims by pharmaceutical companies. Wells applied the techniques of the muckrakers to violence in the South and spent months on the road investigating lynchings. This was dangerous work and she traveled with a pistol in her handbag. Wells published a devastating report in October 1892 that combined statistics and case studies. She concluded that for all of the talk about lynching as a punishment for black crimes, lynchings were actually intended to enforce the inferior status of African-Americans and deter black economic progress. Wells pointed out that white men were far more likely to take sexual advantage of black women than the other way around. Wells' reporting was a bombshell that exploded the Southern narrative about lynching. Americans outside of the South had generally accepted white accounts that lynchings were retribution for Black atrocities. After Wells, Americans slowly and with great hesitation began to question this justification. Whites in Memphis were furious when some of Wells' work was reprinted in white newspapers. A mob ransacked her office and would likely have killed her had she not been out of town. Returning to Memphis was out of the question. Wells settled in Chicago. A few years later, she married attorney Ferdinand L. Barnett and rarely for the time hyphenated her name. In 1909, Wells Barnett was one of the founders of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, although her relationship with the organization was always complicated. Wells argued that lobbying for a federal anti-lynching law should be one of the organization's first priorities, but other founders felt this was too aggressive, too radical. Wells walked out of the meeting. She was eventually reinstated, but tension remained. However, about 10 years later, the NAACP did take up the cause of federal anti-lynching legislation. The organization published a research report, held a national conference, and lobbied politicians. It was important work, but it did little to help those in the South living under the constant threat of mob violence. It seemed there was little these Americans could do to protect themselves or their families, except keep their heads down and try to survive. In this dark and dangerous time, the Great War, for all of its horrors, created new opportunities for African-Americans. First African-American men entered the military, some 200,000 of them by the war's end. They were encouraged by African-American leaders who urged them to enlist as a way to demonstrate their loyalty and capability. The army was, of course, segregated, and most African-Americans were assigned a labor corps that kept them unloading ships and cleaning latrines. General Pershing likely never intended African-American troops to see action, but he hadn't taken into account the demands of the French. The French military was on the edge of collapse and demanded that Pershing send them some of his fresh regiments. Pershing wanted to keep his good, that is, white, units under his own command, so he offered the French several African-American regiments. Among the troops placed under French command were the men of the 369th Infantry Regiment, a black unit made up of recruits primarily from Harlem. The 369th was thrown into battle in April during the German Spring Offensive, entering combat long before the rest of the Americans. It was, of course, a nightmare, but the men fought bravely and earned the respect and gratitude of the entire French nation, The outfit spent 191 days under fire, never lost a foot of ground, and never had a man taken prisoner. The French didn't care that the men were black. They were amazing. The most celebrated soldier of the 369th was Private Henry Johnson. In May, Johnson fought off a 24-man German patrol despite being severely wounded. When his ammunition ran out, he fought on with nothing but a knife. He is believed to have killed at least four German soldiers and wounded up to 30 others. The French granted him their highest award for bravery. The Americans did not, but among African-Americans, he was a hero. Since I won't have occasion to mention Johnson again, I'll say here that after the war, he suffered from injuries sustained during fighting and died in 1929. In 2015, President Barack Obama awarded a posthumous Medal of Honor to Johnson, recognition he deserved far earlier. The other hero of the 369th was James Reese Europe. Europe was a classically trained violinist and an enormously popular ragtime band leader. In 1917, he was recruited to form a regimental band for the 369th. This band brought jazz to Europe. They started with a bang by playing a ragtime version of La Marseillaise at the port in Brest. Amazing, the French, who had never heard anything like it before. Europe's band went on to tour all over France. By the time the war was over, the 369th had earned the nickname the Harlem Hellfighters, and jazz was all the rage in Paris. You can find Europe's music online, and I've included a few links. Here's the Hellfighters band playing the hit How You Gonna Keep Down on the Farm, recorded in 1919. The sound quality isn't great, but you can still hear these are top-notch musicians. also tell the rest of Europe's story. While on tour with his band in May 1919, he was stabbed in the neck and killed by his drummer, who was suffering some kind of psychotic break. Europe was buried in Arlington National Cemetery. That song, How You Gonna Keep Them Down on the Farm, was written about white soldiers, but it was even more relevant to African-American veterans. How would you keep him down on the farm after being treated with genuine respect by the French? The treatment of African-American soldiers in France was instantly recognized as a problem by racist Americans. Senator James Vardaman of Mississippi warned that there would soon be, quote, arrogant strutting representatives of black soldiery in every community, unquote. There was no strutting, and how obnoxious is that wording, but many black veterans did feel they deserved a measure of respect from their fellow Americans. Civil rights leader and author W.E.B. Du Bois encouraged black veterans to harness their sense of pride and channel it into a fight for equal rights. The 51-year-old Du Bois had been another founder of the NAACP and edited the organization's magazine, The Crisis, In May 1919, Du Bois published one of his most famous essays called Returning Soldiers. I've included a link on the website, and I encourage you to go read the entire thing. It's not long. But
1: here's an excerpt. Make way for democracy. We saved it in France, and by the great Jehovah, we will save it in the United States or know the reasons why. This country of ours, despite all its better souls have done and dreamed, is yet a shameful land. It gloats in lynching, disfranchisement, caste, brutality, and insults by the gods of heaven. We are cowards and jackasses if we do not now marshal every ounce of our brain and brawn to fight a sterner, more unbending battle against the forces of hell in our own land. We return. We return from fighting. We return fighting.
0: That's from a 2002 PBS documentary called The Rise and Fall of Jim Crow. This call to action might seem fairly tame at the distance of a century. Why shouldn't black veterans stand up for themselves? But at the time, this was shocking. Since Reconstruction, most black leaders had urged patience, tolerance, cooperation, Keep your head down, they said, and show them you are not a threat. Du Bois was among a new generation who said, We have been patient long enough. It is time to fight for freedom. That fight would be long and bloody. Just how bloody was made clear in an incident that February. That month, Private William Little, a black veteran of the Great War, returned to his hometown of Blakely, Georgia, wearing his army uniform. He was met at the train station by a mob that demanded he take off the uniform and walk home in his underwear. Little refused and might have been killed on the spot, except that a few white men intervened. Little went home and about his life, but he continued wearing his uniform. It was the only set of clothes he owned. On April 3rd, his body was found on the edge of town. He had been beaten to death, still wearing his uniform. I said a few minutes ago that the Great War created two opportunities for African Americans. The second opportunity arose out of a shortage of workers in northern factories. In 1917, demand for weapons and supplies soared just as hundreds of thousands of men were drafted. At the same time, immigration came practically to a halt. Factories were desperate. So recruiters placed ads in African-American newspapers, such as the Chicago Defender, urging workers to come north. At first, only a few men and women made the journey, but they kept in touch with friends and family back home. Word spread that in cities like Chicago, Detroit, and New York, jobs were available, good jobs with steady pay. It says something about how bad conditions were in the South that northern factory work, which we've seen was both relentless and dangerous, was so desirable. This was the start of the Great Migration, in which six million African Americans moved from the South to the Northwest, Midwest, and West between 1915 and 1970. The term Great Migration gives a sense of the scale of the movement, but I fear it may give a false impression. You might picture long lines of people heading north. In fact, fleeing the south was so dangerous it had to be planned and executed under great secrecy. White landowners couldn't afford to lose black laborers. The entire economy was built on their backs. When Southern leaders realized their, not quite but almost, slave labor was fleeing, they panicked. The Chicago Defender was confiscated. Police tore up the train tickets of African Americans or stopped trains and made all of the black passengers get off. One time in Savannah, every black person at the station was arrested, no matter where they were headed or why. But still they fled. When the family of Ida Mae Brandon Gladney decided to leave Chickasaw County, Mississippi, where she and her husband were sharecroppers, they told only their closest family. Quietly, and a bit at a time, they sold everything they couldn't carry. They continued their normal lives until the very last minute, until all of the cotton was picked and the boss handed over their pay, and then they were gone boarding a train the next town over, where they would be less likely to be recognized. For all of its secrecy, the Gladney family's departure was relatively calm. Many African Americans fled in fear of the mob. If black men knew they had caused offense or heard they were a target, they ran. Friends smuggled them out in the backs of pickups or curled in the trunks of cars. They hopped freight trains in the middle of the night. Sometimes entire families had to escape, leaving their homes with nothing but the clothes on their backs. Some researchers suggest the primary cause of the Great Migration was terror, not economics. I wish I could tell you that upon arriving in the Northeast and Midwest, life was full of sunshine and flowers. It wasn't. Yes, it was better, but it's hard to get much worse than life as a black sharecropper in Mississippi in 1919. The war years weren't so bad. The trouble started when the troops began returning home. White soldiers expected they would immediately get their jobs back, but it wasn't that easy. The entire economy was shifting from a war footing back to peacetime production, a process that took time and reduced demand for workers. However, from the perspective of white veterans, the problem came down to black people stealing white jobs. You also need to recall everything else going on in the spring and summer of 1919. The newspapers were filled with stories of chaos in Eastern Europe and the brutality of the Bolsheviks. Someone was sending bombs to politicians and businessmen. On June 2nd, the House of Attorney General Mitchell Palmer was blown up. Unions across the country were striking. Wages were falling, while the cost of living was rising. It took only a spark to send communities into a blaze. On May 10th, a group of white sailors in Charleston, South Carolina, paid a black man to bring them some bootleg whiskey, but he took their money and disappeared. The sailors rampaged through a black district, broke into homes, looted businesses, and smashed up everything in sight. African-American men were pulled out of barbershops and trolleys and brutally beaten. Something like a thousand whites participated in the riot. Five African American men were killed. On July 10th, in Longview, Texas, a white mob went after a man accused of writing an article in the Chicago Defender that, they said, besmirched the reputation of a white woman in the town. The woman's enraged brothers were determined to defend her honor. The situation escalated, and that night, a mob of about a thousand torched black homes, businesses, and meeting places. One African-American man was killed. And on July 18th in Washington, D.C., a white woman claimed to have been harassed by a group of black men. Over the following days, white servicemen rioted through the city attacking African-Americans. Black men were yanked off of streetcars and beaten. Carloads of white soldiers drove down streets shooting up black businesses. The fighting lasted until the early hours of Tuesday, five days of mob violence in the nation's capital. It only ended when the Secretary of War dispersed units of disciplined, experienced troops through the city. It's unknown how many people died. Some reports list four blacks and three whites killed, but it's likely the number was much higher. These incidents stood out from the usual litany of racial violence. First, the context of the Red Scare made observers view the violence through a new lens— Surely, people reasoned, all of the events of 1919 were connected. The Bolsheviks seemed to be behind everything from mail bombs to exploding molasses tanks, so they also had to be playing a role in the racial violence. Surely, nefarious Bolshevik agents were actually provoking the riots. J. Edgar Hoover and other government officials were convinced by this logic and began hunting for the dastardly Bolsheviks. The government also monitored African-American leaders, presumably under the influence of these foreign radicals. The government was deeply paranoid about African-American newspapers and magazines, and the NAACP publication The Crisis was considered particularly dangerous In fact, the May issue, which included Du Bois' essay, Returning Soldiers, was seized by the post office on the grounds that it violated the Espionage Act. Only after vehement protests and frantic review by Justice Department attorneys was the magazine mailed to subscribers. Meanwhile, Red Hunters pointed to the handful of black leaders who espoused socialism or communism or had joined the international workers of the world. The Wobblies, 1919's all-purpose bad guys, were suspect from the get-go because they were the only union that recruited workers of all races. In fact, the Wobblies were accused of inciting a race riot in Bisbee, Arizona. Remember Bisbee, the mining town in Arizona where the sheriff shipped hundreds of mine workers out in cattle cars because some of them were members of the IWW? Yeah, that Bisbee! On July 3, 1919, a group of black troops, all members of the famed 10th Cavalry, the Buffalo Soldiers, arrived in Bisbee to march in the town's 4th of July parade. That night, they betook themselves to Brewery Gulch, Bisbee's red light district. A fight broke out with white policemen. The commander of the 10th Cavalry later claimed that local police had deliberately aggravated the African-American troops. Bisbee officials claimed that IWW representatives had fed horror stories to the soldiers to provoke them into attacking. Personally, I'm inclined not to believe a word that came out of the mouths of Bisbee law enforcement. Hundreds of shots were fired, and it took hours to restore order. No one died, but several people on both sides, as well as some innocent bystanders, were wounded. A second point to make about the riots in the spring and early summer of 1919 is that African-Americans did their best to defend themselves. In Longview, for example, leaders in the black community pleaded for protection from the white police. When they were refused, 25 armed black men defended the home of one of their own, only fleeing when it was clear that hundreds rather than dozens of attackers were on their way. In Washington, thousands of black men armed themselves with anything at hand, including pistols, baseball bats, and lead pipes, and then stood guard around their neighborhood. A few war veterans manned rooftops with rifles. A sense was growing among African Americans that the time had come to stand up to the violence that bore down on them so relentlessly. A poem by Claude McKay appeared that June and captured the state of mind of many
1: if we must die, let it not be like hogs hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain, then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us though dead. O oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe. Though far outnumbered, let us show brave. And for the thousand blows, deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave? Like men will face the murderous, cowardly pack. Pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back.
0: That's If We Must Die, recorded by rapper Ice-T. This was a new rallying cry, a new exhortation for dignity in the face of brutality. By midsummer, the mood in the nation was at the breaking point. Crisis had followed on crisis and every day seemed to bring new terrifying headlines. And then in Chicago, on a hot summer afternoon, five African-American boys decided to go swimming. Remember that the boys had built themselves a raft that they used to paddle around the inlet that divided the white and black beaches. Without realizing it, as they played and splashed and laughed that summer afternoon, their raft drifted south across the invisible line that divided the races. What the boys had no way of knowing was that tensions were already high on the white beach. Earlier that day, several black men and women had tried to enter the beach, This was entirely legal. Segregation was a matter of social convention in Chicago, not law. However, the white crowd ran the blacks off. The African Americans returned with friends and tried to force their way in, but the whites rallied and pushed them out. Apparently, blood pressures on the beach took some time to return to normal. When the boys' raft crossed into the waters of the white beach, a man took it on himself to start throwing rocks at them. The boys were confused more than angry or scared and dove under the raft to get away. But then Eugene Williams suddenly sank down fast. He had been struck in the forehead. The boys rushed back to the black beach and found the lifeguard. He and some helpers frantically searched for Williams, soon discovering his lifeless body and dragging it ashore. Police arrived at the White Beach, and everyone was shouting and hurling accusations. Word of the conflict flew through Chicago, and both races responded. As night fell, armed bands began prowling the city, and then the serious violence started. Rioting continued for a week. It was random, and it was terrifying. One black family spent all of Monday night and Tuesday morning lying on the floor of their apartment, shielding their 18-month-old daughter from gunfire. A black army veteran was pulled out of a trolley and chased blocks by the mob, finally getting away by hiding in a dark alley. A hospital in the African-American neighborhood was besieged for days, trying to treat the wounded as supplies ran low and doctors and nurses feared for their own lives. The African-American community defended itself, barricading streets leading into their neighborhood and positioning armed guards at the corners. But the situation grew desperate. Families had been trapped in their homes for days. They were running out of food, but the shops had been unable to receive deliveries. Since no one could get to work, no one had been paid. Finally, late on the Wednesday night, the mayor requested the help of the state militia. Fortunately, these troops were impartial and disciplined, and peace was restored by the weekend. But the cost had been horrific. 38 people were dead, 23 white, 15 African American. More than 500 were seriously wounded. Homes and businesses were burned out, and many families lost everything they owned. It is as if the Chicago riot unleashed a sort of poison, and racial violence spiked. Black veterans were frequent targets. In Bogalusa, Louisiana, a former serviceman was lynched by a mob of a thousand whites on the charge of attacking a white woman. He was hanged, his body dragged behind a car, and then burned. Outside of Pope City, Georgia, a black veteran named Jim Grant was accused of shooting two white men. A mob grabbed Grant and hanged him from a telephone pole. Riots continued. Syracuse, Philadelphia, York. In late September in Omaha, Nebraska, a white couple claimed to have been attacked and the woman raped by a black man. Police arrested a man named Willie Brown on what evidence is not clear and held him in the county courthouse. A mob decided they needed to handle Brown themselves, and by the afternoon of the following day, between five and 15,000 people surrounded the courthouse, demanding the police hand him over. To be fair to the Omaha Sheriff's deputies, they tried to protect Brown, but there were only about two dozen law enforcement officers facing thousands of enraged Nebraskans. Those in the mob who had not brought their own arms helped themselves to weapons when the crowd broke into two local gun stores. For hours, the mob milled around the courthouse, but in early evening, they rushed the doors and flooded into the first floor. The mayor, the sheriff's deputies, their prisoner, and some 100 other prisoners who just happened to be held in the county jail that weekend fled up the stairs. It was insanity. The mob wrecked the lower floors of the courthouse, destroying furniture and records and trashing offices and courtrooms. Then someone showed up with gasoline and began setting fires. The smoke and heat rose and prisoners and deputies leaned out of the windows and screamed for help. Firefighters arrived. The mob cut their hoses. Those trapped inside retreated to the roof where they dodged bullets from neighboring buildings. The mayor went downstairs and tried to reason with the mob, but he was nearly lynched himself and only saved when a few brave individuals stepped in to rescue him. Willie Brown was not so lucky. Around 11 p.m., someone on the roof handed him over to the mob. Brown was beaten senseless. He was strung up on a lamppost and shot dozens of times. Then they cut down the body, tied it to a car, and dragged it through the streets. Finally, the bloody corpse was soaked in gasoline and set aflame. There are actually photos of this moment. Many in the crowd are smiling. You can look for these photos. They're easy to find online, but I will not be putting them on my website. Among those who witnessed the lynching of Willie Brown was a 14-year-old Henry Fonda. He observed the whole scene from the second floor of his father's printing shop across the street from the courthouse He never forgot it. The rise in violence confirmed to many observers that Bolsheviks and other agitators were pulling the strings. America had never seen race riots on this scale, so a new player must have entered the game. One intelligence report delivered to Washington warned, quote, the doctrine preached by the IWW, agitators and radical socialism, are daily winning new converts among the Negroes. Southerners had an entirely different explanation for the violence. It was the North's own fault for treating African-Americans with a modicum of dignity. Politicians and editorial writers explained that in the South, they, quote, understood Blacks and, quote, knew how to keep them in line. By pampering African Americans, the North had brought this upon itself. However, a few investigators looked beyond fear and prejudice for the real origins of the rising conflict. For example, the civil rights activist and NAACP leader Walter White wrote an analysis of the situation in Chicago and concluded that the riot had eight causes. And here I quote him, number one, race prejudice, number two, economic competition, number three, political corruption and exploitation of Negro voters, number four, police inefficiency. Number five, newspaper lies about Negro crime. Number six, unpunished crimes against Negroes. Number seven, housing shortages and restrictions. And number eight, reaction of whites and Negroes from the war. End quote. A series of columns written by poet and writer Carl Sandburg examining living and working conditions among Chicago's African Americans came to the same conclusions. Sandberg articles were published as a book in September with an introduction by writer and political commentator Walter Lippmann. Lippmann wrote, and I think this quote is amazing Until we have learned to house everybody, employ, everybody at decent wages in a self-respecting status, guarantee his civil liberties, and bring education and play to him, the bulk of our talk about the race problem will remain a sinister mythology. The year was not yet over. October and November would see riots in Baltimore, Macon, and Wilmington. But the most terrifying events of Red Summer began only a few days after the Omaha riot on September 30th in rural Phillips County, Arkansas, near the small towns of Elaine and Helena. Phillips County was cotton country. The majority of African-Americans in the area, and therefore the majority of the population since blacks far outnumbered whites, were sharecroppers. Sharecropping was a rigged game. White bosses owned the land, the equipment, the tools, and the seed. They set prices and controlled accounts. Many, probably most, sharecroppers lived trapped in debt bondage that was slavery in all but name. However, cotton prices had soared during the war, and even the most hard-pressed sharecroppers made money. Some even achieved a measure of comfort and independence. With this rise in economic security, the African-Americans of Phillips County began considering how to improve their lives going forward. In late 1918, several of them formed an organization they called the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America. It was intended to promote modern farming practices, serve as a fraternal body of mutual support, and act as a union. The sharecroppers wanted to hire an attorney to help them negotiate fair contracts with cotton merchants and landowners. Of course, news got out about the formation of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union. To white landowners, the organization appeared deeply sinister. Where did locals even get the idea for a union? Surely it must have been planted by outsiders, by those dangerous wobblies. A union could only mean a strike. And a strike would likely lead to the economic ruin of the white population. And would the conspiring blacks stop with a strike? Likely not. By late September 1919, the whites of Phillips County were convinced that the blacks of Phillips County were planning the systematic slaughter of all white people in the region. On the night of September 30th, a meeting of the progressive farmers was underway at the African-American church in Hoopspur, which was basically a wide spot in the road between Elaine and Helena. In response to the growing tension, armed guards had been positioned around the church. Nevertheless, the evening was festive, with about 100 men, women, and children gathered to sing songs and hear speeches. About two hours into the meeting, a car carrying two armed white men pulled up about 40 yards from the church. What happened next is disputed. According to one story, the white men in the car opened fire on the church. According to another story, the black guards opened fire on the car. You can probably guess which side told which story. In any case, within seconds, shots were flying. In the church... Glass shattered, and the audience dove to the floor, overturning benches, throwing themselves over their children, snuffing out lanterns. When the shooting stopped, families tossed their children down through the windows and then followed, grabbing their kids' hands and running for the woods. One of the white men in the car had been killed and another severely wounded. By dawn, everyone in the state knew the white version of events. Newspapers ran headlines like, quote, Negroes plan to kill all whites. The entire American Legion post showed up armed and quickly organized into posses to hunt down the black insurrectionists. They vowed to kill every black man in the county. African Americans hid in the woods for days. Some black men, several of them war veterans, tried to mount a defense but it was hopeless. They were outgunned and outnumbered. Three days into the conflict, the governor arrived in person along with about 500 soldiers and a dozen machine guns. But unlike in Washington and Chicago, these troops were not there to stop the violence. They were there to join in. The soldiers marched out of a lane and for the next 36 hours rained fire on the African-Americans of Phillips County. They arrested several hundred men, they detained hundreds more women and children, but dozens, perhaps hundreds, of blacks were shot down. How many African Americans were killed in Phillips County, Arkansas, in 1919? No one knows. You might think the military would have properly documented the events of those few days, but Army reports were deliberately vague. They never once mentioned firing at African Americans. Yet eyewitness testimony described men shot while surrendering with their hands in the air. Men hanged from bridges. Men doused with kerosene and set on fire. The NAACP later put the death toll between 200 and 400. A journalist working in 1925 claimed 856 were killed. In a 2017 commemoration of the massacre, the state of Arkansas estimated between 100 and 237 African-Americans dead. The exact number is impossible to say. But locals knew exactly how many whites had been killed. Three. And African-Americans would have to pay for those deaths. In late October, less than a month after the massacre, a grand jury, all white naturally, indicted 122 blacks. Within days, 12 of them were convicted of murder and sentenced to death by electric chair. Outside of Phillips County, it was impossible to know exactly what had happened. White newspapers accepted the accounts of white locals and ran screeching headlines about socialist labor agitators provoking a black uprising. African-Americans read these headlines with extreme skepticism. The NAACP decided it needed to find out the truth. So Walter White arrived in Arkansas. White was mixed race, but fairly light-skinned, so he passed himself off as a white reporter for the White Chicago Daily News. He interviewed both black and white witnesses and was able to put together a fairly comprehensive story in only a few days. He actually left town earlier than originally planned when a local African-American warned him that his identity had been discovered and he himself would be lynched if he didn't get away. Ida Wells Barnett also traveled to Elaine later in the fall after one of the 12 convicted prisoners was able to smuggle out a letter to her. It was the first time Wells Barnett had entered the South after being driven away in 1892, She convinced prison staff she was a relative and interviewed all of the men, as well as their wives and other eyewitnesses. The accounts of White and Wells Barnett make clear three points. First, the story of a planned slaughter of Whites was nonsense. Second, African Americans were slaughtered in untold numbers. Third, the murder convictions were a miscarriage of justice. The prisoners described to Wells Barnett the torture they had endured before finally agreeing to write out confessions. Meanwhile, the families of the prisoners described how they had been left with nothing. Their homes had been ransacked and their possessions stolen or destroyed. Renters were unceremoniously evicted and sharecropping contracts were canceled. Wells Barnett wrote, If this is democracy, what is Bolshevism? Violence died down as the temperature dropped and the leaves fell. But the lynchings never stopped, and the years to come would see more riots. In 1921, in Tulsa, the entire African-American district of the city was destroyed, and between 36 and 300 blacks were killed. It is difficult, then, to see how Red Summer changed anything, but to observers at the time, the year marked turning point. For one thing, African-Americans would continue fleeing the South. For another, African-Americans had resolved not to endure without protest their treatment at the hands of whites. This was certainly felt among the leadership of the NAACP. At the 1920 annual meeting in January, the admission ticket carried the slogan, quote, Down to lynching. We've just begun to fight. Part of that fight was the campaign for federal anti-lynching legislation. Also in January 1920, the House Judiciary Committee convened a hearing to review three such bills. Several members of the NAACP testified. Among them was Arthur Springarn, who represented the organization's legal committee. He laid out the problem as he saw it, quote, the states are either powerless to prevent lynchings or they do not choose to prevent lynchings. If they are powerless to prevent lynchings, then we have mob rule in the states, mobocracy, and the violation of the Constitution itself. If they can do it and do not prevent it, you have a violation of the 14th Amendment in that we do not give equal protection to blacks. Nothing came of the hearing. Anti-lynching legislation was routinely blocked by Southern Democrats. Meanwhile, the existence of outside agitators received official endorsement from the Justice Department. In November, Attorney General Palmer submitted a report to Congress on the threat of Bolshevism in America. The report, which was presumably written by Hoover, included a discussion of anti-American activities among blacks. These activities, it said, were provoked by socialists, communists, and the IWW. Curiously, another report, one that had been submitted to the government a few months earlier, came to exactly the opposite conclusion. This was a report by Walter H. Loving, an African-American soldier, musician, and intelligence agent. Loving had the most fascinating career. He was a classically trained cornetist who conducted the military band at President Taft's inauguration. Then he went on to investigate subversive activities by African-Americans for military intelligence. Loving submitted his final report on un-American activities among black organizations in August 1919. He noted that there were, in fact, a few African-Americans in the communist, socialist, and labor movements. However, he made it clear that none of the recent riots had anything to do with Bolsheviks or Wobblies. Instead, the source of racial conflict in 1919 was a complex web of social and economic factors and the fact that for African-Americans, enough was enough. Loving wrote, quote, The Negro has finally decided that he has endured all that he can endure. He has decided to strike back. Loving's report was passed up the chain and apparently read by the Secretary of War, but then it was shelved. The narrative, a narrative that happened to be true, of a population pushed to its limits was forgotten. The false narrative of radical outside agitators stirring up trouble was enshrined in the American mind. This explanation of racial conflict has persisted for a century, was routinely employed during the civil rights movement, and was trotted out again during protests in Ferguson in 2014 and Baltimore in 2015. An even more devastating consequence of Red Summer was the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. The original Klan had been founded during Reconstruction, but it had died out over time. The Klan was reestablished in 1915 after the movie Birth of a Nation, which painted a glowing picture of the racist organization, became a national blockbuster. This incarnation of the Klan branded itself as a patriotic fraternal order opposed to many of the bugbears of the era, including the labor movement and immigration, while promoting white supremacy. Between 1915 and 1919, the organization had recruited several thousand members, mostly in Georgia and Alabama. But the racial violence of 1919 sparked interest in the group and membership surged. By the early 1920s, local chapters had been established across the country, spewing hate and terror wherever they went. And yet, and yet, not all was lost. With the support of Ida Wells Barnett and the fundraising efforts of the NAACP, new legal representation was secured for the 12 Arkansas men convicted of murder in the Elaine Massacre. They appealed the case all the way to the Supreme Court and argued that the threat of mob violence, forced testimony, and rushed trials had irretrievably prejudiced the court. In February 1923, the Supreme Court ruled in their favor. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes stated, quote, There never was a chance for the petitioners to be acquitted. No juryman could have voted for an acquittal and continued to live in Phillips County. And if any prisoner had by chance been acquitted by a jury, he could not have escaped the mob, By December 1923, the 12 men were all free and living somewhere other than Arkansas. The case remains significant in American law it established the legal precedent that death penalty defendants could seek redress in federal court if they believed they had not received a fair trial in state court. One of those freed from the Arkansas death row was a man named Ed Ware. While in prison, he wrote a song about his suffering. Here is that song, recorded by J.C. Burnett and his congregation.
1: I has been
0: a difficult episode to research, write and record. There is the horror of it all, and that horror is without end. The photos that I've seen have left me feeling physically ill. But as a white woman, there is another feeling that I had to confront. That feeling is shame. Here I can only speak from my own perspective as a white woman and to the community into which I was born, that of fellow whites. We all like to think that if we had lived in another time, we would have been one of the good guys. We wouldn't have stoned the adulteress or burned the witch. We would have educated our daughters and paid our servants a good wage. We would never have owned other people. We would have joined the Underground Railroad and fought for the Union. We would have marched with Dr. King and registered voters in rural Mississippi. We would never have joined a howling mob to drag a black man from his home, torture him, hang him, and set his corpse on fire. We all like to think this because we believe we are good people. I'm sure the whites of Phillips County, Arkansas, also believed themselves to be good people. The blood of Red Summer and of all the Red Summers and all the Red Seasons stains the United States. And as a white American, that stain is on me as well. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you visit the website at www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com, where I've included photos and links, including to Ida Wells' original report on lynching from 1892. Please join the Facebook group and follow me on Twitter. Two quick announcements. First, I have set up a Patreon account and a PayPal account for this podcast. If you've been thinking, golly gee, I wish there was a way I could support Elizabeth, now is your chance. You can either make a one-time donation or become a monthly patron. And believe me, every little bit helps toward offsetting hosting costs and supporting my time. Visit the website and click on the support button to learn more. Second, I have realized that producing a new episode once a week is simply more than I can handle, so I'm going to move to posting every other week. If I can ever do more than that, I will, but a bi-monthly schedule is a manageable commitment for right now. Sorry about that, but I need a weekend now and then. Look for a new episode then on February 4th. I will be telling the story of the Pan-African Congress and the forgotten civil rights leader, William Monroe Trotter. And this guy is awesome. You won't want to miss it. Thanks again for listening. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is The Year That Was.